Where did everybody go? That's a good problem to have, I think. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks to us in every season, in the lows and the highs, that it gives to us your truth, what you want us to know, that you reveal who you are, what you're doing, what you're doing with us, and who we are. That you reveal all of that through your word, and that we can be confident that we, that we hold your truth and are reading your truth every time we crack it open. Lord, I pray that you bless my mouth today, that I may say only what you want me to say and nothing more and nothing less, and that your spirit would go forth and work in lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, the big-name sports, uh, uh, big sports article website called Bleacher Report uh, published an article entitled, Big-Time Athletes Who Got Cut From Teams. And it speaks to the tenacity and determination of athletes who at some point in their lives were told they didn't measure up, in a few cases literally, but who kept going in spite of the setback and went on to have highly profitable professional sports careers. Some of these you may not recognize, but in the soccer world, Lionel Messi is arguably the best soccer player in the entire world. Somebody's shaking their head back there. However, when he was 11 years old, his junior team cut him from the team because he was too short. The truth was that Messi had a, a growth hormone deficiency that stunted his growth, but Messi didn't let that, nor his heartbreak as a kid, keep him from giving it his all and becoming one of the highest scoring players in soccer. NFL quarterback Kurt Warner went to training camp with the Green Bay Packers in 1994 following his college career, but got caught from the roster. Warner wasn't able to finish training camp and had to go find work somewhere else where he ended up stocking shelves at a grocery store for near minimum wage. Eventually, however, Warner's drive led him to the Arena Football League, NFL Europe, and eventually back to the NFL, where he was so successful that he was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2017. One of my personal favorites, and you'll see why, is the story of Carmelo Anthony. Anthony, who was a superstar for the New York Knicks, was actually cut from his high school basketball team his freshman year because his coach thought he was too short. And during one of his summers in high school, Anthony shot up almost half a foot in one summer, transferred to a different high school, and then committed to Syracuse University following graduation. In 2003, Anthony led the Syracuse Orange to their only NCAA title, earning most outstanding player honors. For those who know me know why that's one of my personal favorites. And who can forget Michael Jordan, who had a similar sto story to, to Carmelo Anthony, being told by his high school, var uh, high school varsity basketball coach that he wasn't good enough or tall enough to play his sophomore year. After he grew four inches, he tried out his junior year and made the team, becoming All-American the following year, winning the University of North Carolina a national championship, and becoming arguably the best pro basketball player in the history of the sport. In these examples of highly skilled and talented athletes, at one point they were all told that they weren't good enough. 
in connection with the teams of their younger years, I wonder if the thought, I'm not wanted, crossed their minds. If they had allowed those thoughts to consume their minds and dictate their future, they would not have become the sports superstars that they had become. They knew that that wasn't who they are. There are a lot of people walking around this earth who have that thought, I'm not wanted. And they they let that thought hold them captive and not allow them to see themselves the way that God sees them. They allow those thoughts to control them and prevent them from becoming the people that God wants them to be. The truth of the matter is, however, is that if you've received forgiveness for your sins and have put your faith in the death, resurrection, and kingship of Jesus, you never have to have those thoughts. You never have to wonder about that because the truth that we're going to be talking about this morning, God has chosen you. Not only has He chosen you, He has a purpose for you. God has chosen you to be a vital part of His family. God will never leave you, he'll never dump you, he'll never reject you, he'll never give up on you, and he'll never get rid of you. He will always love you, he will always care for you, he will always provide for you, heal you, redeem you, discipline you, comfort you, teach you, forgive you, and give you exactly what you need physically, emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually exactly when you need it. To be a child of God means that you never have to wonder that you will ever be alone. Beyond that, let's delve into the deeper meaning beyond, uh, behind the decision God made to choose you to be his child. So the first point that we come to as we work through this passage this morning in 2 Thessalonians 2 is the process. And if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And if you didn't, that's perfectly fine. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. We're in the New Testament. If you're having trouble finding it, you can look in the table of contents. Uh, it's, it's, we're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to be picking up in verse 13. We're continuing on in 2 Thessalonians, and last week we finished up our little mini-series on what Paul describes in his further explanation in the believers to Thessalonica as to why they did not need to fear that they were already in the end times period known as the Tribulation. And if you missed any of the three messages in that mini-series, I encourage you to check those out later today on our website or podcast. Paul gave them further proof that this wasn't the case by describing a person with unique circumstances and event and, and, and an event that he will initiate that no one would be able to miss. Paul used this end times event that was so obvious to prove to the Thessalonians point blank, this has not happened yet, nor anything close to it, so take your focus off of your fears and place them where they really need to be, and that's the power and mission of living out the gospel of Jesus Christ. To back up his point and what he's already gone over in the preceding verses, Paul starts out verse 13 with an extremely 
contrasting statement. Verse 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. You see there that he starts off with but. He's making a clear distinction from what he's already talked about in the previous verses. That of all of those who are going to completely defect from faith in the one true God and adhere in worship to the Antichrist. But he says, but... We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. So he's making a very clear distinction here between the believers in Thessalonica and those who will worship the Antichrist. See, he's already covered what would happen to the majority of the world's population at the time the Antichrist sets himself up in the Jewish temple as God. That all these people are going to be deluded and deceived into believing that the Antichrist was the real Christ. And because of that, their judgment was sealed to fully complete the evil they had been indulging in. But, Paul says, but you are not part of that group of people. You were not chosen to receive the condemnation for the selfishness and sin that you wanted to indulge in. You were chosen to receive the salvation from indulging in that and the salvation from that condemnation. But also notice what Paul obviously snuck into that statement about salvation. Do you see that? That the Thessalonian believers in Jesus were not saved from the condemnation of their sin to get a free pass to live the rest of their lives in a way that reflected the exact same way that everyone else in that port city or really throughout the rest of the Roman Empire in the world for that matter lived their lives. See, he's, he's not saying, you were chosen by God, so have fun. You can just know that God's grace covers me, and I don't need to worry about following any sort of standards or following the path that God has chosen for me. Instead, Paul pointed out to them the importance of the process of sanctification in their lives. That's a big word, isn't it? They were chosen from the beginning for a purpose. Not for God to just shower blessings upon, give a good and easy life to them, and then give them real estate on a cloud upon their death. That's not what God chose them for. No, they were chosen from the beginning for a purpose. To be given salvation, but to have that salvation proven by their process of sanctification. What in the world does the word sanctification mean? That's a, that's a pretty big word. Maybe for some of you, this is the first time you've ever heard that word. What sanctification is, is the lifelong process of change and transformation that God starts to work in your heart and life immediately upon the point that you give your life to God because of that opportunity opened up for you by the death and resurrection of Jesus. At first, in our humanity, we think to ourselves, I don't want that. Who in the right mind wants that? I just want to be the same person I've always been, except now I don't have to worry about going to hell. But if you really stop and think about it, it's exactly what Paul is referring to here in verse 13. Sanctification, that change and transformation process, is the evidence and proof that God really has chosen you. You might be thinking, what are you talking about? Well, Paul says here at the end of verse 13 
that the Holy Spirit is the one who does the sanctification or the spiritual transformation in our hearts. The Bible teaches that when we accept God's free gift of salvation from the effects of our sin, the Holy Spirit immediately comes and indwells us. That is, he comes and makes a home within us. You've often heard the phrase that your body is a temple. My body is a temple, but they just end it there. The Bible says the exact same thing, but in reality, a temple of what? Yourself? A temple devoted to yourself? No. A lot of people would see it that way, but elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul says that our bodies are the temple of who? The Holy Spirit. That's where he makes a home. So if the Holy Spirit has to come and make a home inside of you, he's not a deadbeat who sits around all day doing nothing. No, in fact, he never rests. He is always working inside of us, freeing us from the chains of oppression and addiction, healing us from the wounds of, from our pasts, creating a stirring inside of us to guide us in our everyday decisions, bringing to our remembrance the truth found in God's word, and ultimately making us the people that God wants us to be. All of that is part of this sanctification process. If that's not happening then the hard question you have to ask yourself is, is the Holy Spirit indwelling me, and have I really wholeheartedly fully received God's gift of forgiveness and salvation? And if you sit back and you ask yourself that question, oh man, the more I think about it, I, I don't see that. I don't think I actually have. And if not, that's okay. Because you're being honest with yourself, and that's a starting point. The worst place to be in is to deceive yourself into thinking something that's not really true. But if, but if you really think to yourself, yeah, I don't know if I've ever done that, then that's okay because you're being honest with yourself and it's a starting point. After the service, come talk to me, talk to one of the other elders so we can talk through what it really means to give your life to God and what that looks like in real everyday life. So Paul gives thanks to God for the Thessalonian believers because it's obvious to them that their faith in Jesus is strong even in the midst of harrowing persecution. It's obvious to them because their response to that persecution is right in line with a strong faith and a changing life by the Holy Spirit. How important is this lifelong process of change and transformation to our faith? See, a lot of people are walking around this earth saying, yeah, I believe in God. I have faith in God. Isn't that enough? That, that's where the story ends, right? I mean, at least I'm not an atheist. At least I believe in something. At least I have faith in God. But when you look at your life, what they're showing is everything but that. I'm not here to bash people who are like that. But if there is a big, but, but, but there is a big, big difference between believing in God and having faith in God and actually allowing that faith to change the way that you see, process, and respond to different situations and temptations. There's a big difference between that. For anyone who has ever been in a romantic relationship, there's a big difference between your significant other saying, I love you, and even knowing in your mind that they love you, and actually showing that love 
in real ways by living it out, right? There's a big difference between that. There's a big difference between somebody saying, I love you to you, and making what changes need to be made. And there's a big difference between saying, I love you, and desiring to be the best person that you can be to your significant other, right? Anyone who's ever been in a romantic relationship knows that. There's a big difference between saying it and saying I love that person and actually living it out, actually showing it. That faith and really that love for God is shown when we surrender every area of our lives up to God's transformation. Jesus said that outright when he told his disciples, if you love me, obey my commandments. A lot of us wish that verse wasn't in the Bible. (laughs) That's a very big pill to swallow right there. If you love me, if you say that you have faith in God, obey my commandments. That's pretty clear, isn't it? There's not much wiggle room there, is it? Is is there? There's not. Much, I'm not getting much response from you guys when I ask that. If you claim to have faith in God, if you claim to love God, it goes hand in hand with your life decision decisions, showing your love for God and your faith for God by obeying his commandments. It goes hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. Now why? That seems pretty egotistical of God, doesn't it? (laughs) Imagine your significant other coming up to you and saying, if you love me, obey everything I tell you to do. That's not going to go over too well, is it? So when we read this, at first glance, it seems pretty egotistical of God. In fact, a lot of critics of belief in God are quick to point that out. That God wants to save you and give your faith for what reason? Just so he can then tell you what to do and you have to obey him? Shouldn't that be seen as some form of spiritual abuse? But here's the thing that we as human beings are often blind to. All these commands in Scripture for the way that we're supposed to see things and live our lives, they're the way we were always supposed to live to have the, ble- the best and most blessed lives as humans. They were always the way that, we, that it was supposed to be. We as humans were the ones who decided to throw all of that away to act and live in a way that we thought best because we thought that we could be God and come up with our own definitions of what's right and what's wrong. That was the very first sin, was it not? Satan convinced Eve with this lie. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. It wasn't that that was the lie that Satan told to deceive Eve. It was that, 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 that this desire was apparently so attractive to Eve that she was willing to give everything up to achieve that. That's the point here. Adam was worse because he wasn't deceived into believing it. It was a power move that he and his humanity believed was too good to pass up. And ever since then, human society has always tried to come up with its own set of morality. What's right and what's wrong, and some of it lines up with what the Bible says, and some of it doesn't. The process of sanctification is a lifelong warring against that deeply ingrained human societal standard of morality. That's why biblical standards seem so weird 
so counterintuitive, so nonsensical, and so downright irrelevant because it oftentimes is completely countercultural. We've been so blinded by society to believe that what society deems right is right, no matter what. And so if the Bible goes against that, then the Bible is the one that's wrong and narrow-minded. Do you see the, the, the upside-downness of this? That's what's so dangerous about swallowing society's moral standard hook, line, and sinker and not listening to what God has always said. See, this is why listening to and following God's moral standard instead of any other standard is not God being egotistical or narrow-minded. It's because God's moral standard was always the way we were supposed to live. Again, to have the best and most blessed life we could have. It's his protection against destruction for us. When humanity defected from that and started coming up with their own standard is when God's standard was called into question. That's when that started happening. You can read all about that. This is not me pulling this out of nowhere. You can read all about that in Romans chapter 1. What this process of transformation or sanctification really is if you remove all of the cultural and societal distractions, push all, the way, all those to the side, and you look at it at what it really is, what God's process of transformation and sanctification really is, is God calling us back to our original purpose. That's all it is. It's not some new thing. It's God calling us back to our original purpose purpose. So we talked about the process, sanctification, that lifelong process of transformation, and now we're going to talk about what that purpose is, that original purpose that God is bringing us back to through this transformation. What sanctification really is, is God calling each believer in Jesus back to the original way of life that God had intended for his beloved creation. When he had that unbroken, intimate, fully connected relationship with humanity. And equally as important, we were created how? We were created in the image of God. That's what scripture clearly tells us. We were created in the image of God. An image of anything is a representation of them, right? Even though they're not to the fullest capacity. A painting of a person is supposed to represent them, their qualities and their character. You can see it in their eyes and in their expression that's being painted. It's not, the painting is not the person, it's him or herself, nor will a painting ever fully represent the person, but it's a representation of that person. We as humans were originally created to be representations of God and represent, representations of God's characteristics, albeit in a much smaller and limited capacity. We as humans also thought merely being representations of God and not God himself wasn't good enough. We wanted all of it. So through the process of sanctification, God is slowly bringing us back 
to that originally created purpose for us. Representations of God being fully connected to him as our good and perfect father. That's why the purpose of our salvation, what God is calling us to, and really calling us back to, is why Paul writes in verse 14, it was for this, he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This goes hand in hand with what we've just been discussing. One biblical scholar noted that the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ that Paul is referring to here is connecting back to what he's already told the believers in chapter 1 of this letter. Chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, when we read, when he co- we've already covered this, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, what day? The day of his second return, right? And to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. To this end, very similar language to what he says in verse 14. To this end also we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling. And fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. And here's what connects to verse 14 here. So that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 14 in our passage this morning is pretty much a summary reiteration of those verses in chapter 1, isn't it? That's the when at the beginning. When's the when at the beginning of verse 10? Right here. When. We already talked about it. At Jesus' second coming, at the end of that seven-year tribulation period that we've been talking about for quite a while now. Who's going to be with Jesus when he fully returns to earth to crush the Antichrist, his armies, and his puppet master, Satan? We are. Those of us who have committed our lives to living for Jesus now. See how this all connects to this process of sanctification? Revelation 17.14 tells us point blank. Together, the Antichrist and his armies will go to war against the Lamb, Jesus, but the Lamb will defeat them because he is Lord of all lords and King of all kings and his called and chosen and faithful ones will be with him. And that connects directly to what we're talking about in our passage this morning. When we return with Jesus at his second coming, we will return as his glorified representatives behind him, wearing, as Revelation states in chapter 19, the white and clean clothes of righteousness. Those white and clean clothes of righteousness are the last step in our sanctification process of making us more and more into the representation of Jesus. You see all that? This is where all of what we're talking about in 2 Thessalonians is headed. That's why Paul says in verse 14 that we've been called to that future position of glory with Jesus, but that's why Paul also says this again. To this end also we pray for you always 
that end of being glorified with him when we return with him, that our God will count you worthy of your calling and what? Fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. That's that process of sanctification. That's that process of transformation. See, it all goes hand in hand. You can't have that future glorification with Jesus at his return without this, without the transformation. You can't have one without the other. You can't count yourself chosen by God, but not be living as a representative of that calling now. It doesn't work like that. Likewise, you can't claim faith in God without it changing your life. You can't claim God as your Father if you're not willing to surrender every area of your life up in obedience to His original moral standard. The funny thing about, these, about some of these words to the Thessalonians is that it's really just a reiteration of all of, of, of what Paul had already told them. In verse 15 he says, So then, brethren, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Don't get thrown into this whole other uh, idea of thinking. Stand firm in what? I already taught you when I was with you before I had to leave Thessalonica and stand firm, get this, in the truth I already wrote to you in my first letter to you. That letter that I sent to you. In other words, he tells the Thessalonians, don't be led astray by what anyone else tells you as how you should live. Everybody and their brother is going to tell you how you should live. You've already been given the truth of God's word and teaching from God's word. Remain faithful to that and you will never be confused, shaken, or deceived. When it comes down to being chosen by God, we always have to remember that there's a purpose behind it. Yes, what we gain is the eternal love of our perfectly good Heavenly Father. Yes, there's no doubt about that. He will comfort us in our times of distress, darkness, pain, heartbreak, anxiety, and confusion. He will provide for our every need, whether they be physical, emotional, relational, mental, psychological, or spiritual. He will heal our wounds no matter what form they take. He will redeem our pasts and make every single part of our lives useful for his service. He gives us the eternal hope and peace that we so desperately need in any given situation. All of that is true. In short, he gives us himself. He gives us his presence in a spiritual return to his originally created relationship with humanity that was always the way it was supposed to be. He gives us a restoration and a reconnect to his power and presence. He will never give up on us. He will never leave us. He will never leave us alone. But that's not where the story ends. That restoration is a responsibility. We can't have one without the other. If we want God to return to his original relationship with us, 
that intimate and personal connection with us and walking with us every step of every day of the rest of our lives, we must also recognize and accept what he's returning to us as well. We must fully surrender ourselves to the Holy Spirit transforming us into that originally created image and representation of Jesus. That seems completely disconnected from our culture, doesn't it? Seems like something completely new. Where did you come up with that? That doesn't make any sense. We must disband our society's humanly established moral standard and commit ourselves to following and obeying God's original standard, the one we were always supposed to follow as representations of him. We must acknowledge that our lives are no longer ours because we have been drafted onto God's team. We have been recruited to God's army of light, truth, and love. We have been called to a higher purpose, and that is to be representatives of Jesus in the here and now with the way that we live our lives, knowing that that calling will be completely fulfilled when Jesus fully returns to earth in the future. You've heard the saying, the future is now, right? Usually in marketing ploys. But when we think of our calling as representations of Jesus to the world with the way that we live our lives, the calling of our future really is the calling of now, really is the way we must surrender our lives now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these truths brought to us in your word. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who says, well, yeah, I believe in God, isn't that good enough? That they've been shaken a little bit. That you've created a stirring within them to be completely honest with themselves and see if that faith that they claim is really changing their life. Lord, I pray that if, if anyone here can look back on their life and they don't see much of any of that going on, I pray that they would be honest with themselves, that they would humble themselves, and that today they would finally accept what you have done for them on the cross, that you paid the penalty for our sin, something that we had no hope of doing on our own because of our own sinfulness, that you rose again three days later to defeat our greatest enemy, death, to prove that you are God, and to prove that you are the one who can forgive sins. Lord, I pray that we would surrender ourselves completely up to your transformation as you then start to return us back to that originally created purpose you had for us. I pray that each and every one of us, whether we've been a believer in Jesus for decades or whether it's just been a week, Lord, I pray that you would turn our hearts back to you. I pray that you would point out to us maybe a little niche Maybe another nook or cranny in our lives that we haven't yet surrendered up to your transformation and your change. And I pray that we would get that right with you. We thank you that your grace and your love covers anything that we could ever do. And that you welcome us into your family. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare our hearts to come.